Welcome to Board Game Binge, the place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content from across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we're chatting with Dave Beck, practicing game designer and owner of Paverson Games, the publisher behind Kickstarter's newest hit, Distilled. He's also director and associate dean of the School of Art and Design at Wisconsin Stout. Dave, welcome to The Binge. How are you doing? I'm great, James. Thank you so much for having me here. Really excited to be here. Is awesome to have you here. We're very excited. This game is doing incredibly. So we're going to get to the game in a second. But man, do you ever have a story I want to dive into? <laughs> Rarely do we have the honor of talking to somebody that actually teaches uh, game design on this podcast. So tell me a little bit about kind of that background. So you're you're a, a dean at uh, Wisconsin University. Is this what's that all about? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm so happy to be here. I'm, uh, an academic, a professor. Uh, I'm, I'd like to think I'm not too stuffy, but you know, who knows? Um, yes, I'm a, I'm associate Dean, uh, director of the school of art and design. So really my background is art and design way back. Background was more kind of fine art and more recently more design. And, uh, I was lucky enough 10 years ago to start at the University of Wisconsin Stout uh, and kind of help start the game design program here. Um, As with most universities, it's all about video games. Uh, But for myself, um, uh, what's really been interesting is how we've designed the program around board games as kind of that foundation. So when a a student first starts at Stout, they're not making video games. They're making nothing but board games. And I'm introducing nothing but board games to them as well. Oh, that's super cool. So you actually created, or I guess founded the, the Bachelors of Fine Arts program in game design, specific, uh, game, yeah, game design, I guess, right there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's, there, when I was hired, we already had a, a kind of more uh, technical side. So lots of programming yeah. for games there. Uh, and it was a, it's a really successful program, but they didn't have a lot of art and design yet. And so I uh, created this um, kind of more art and design focused major around games. And now the two work together. So the yeah. artists and designers work with the programmers in this case to make video games all as one big team. That's so cool. Yeah, it <laughs> so, is. It's, it's, I always say, like, I, I tell my students, it's okay to play games as homework. I yeah. tell um, and I tell my wife and as well as my students that I'm sorry, I have to play some games. It's, it's time to do some research. So it's, it, it is. I'm, I'm a very lucky person. That's for sure. And how far, like, so you have, do you guys dive deep into mechanics and things like that as well? Is it more of the aesthetic or is it, is it all of the above? Yeah, good question. So I, I like to talk about, to my students as well as others about game design or game development as a three-legged stool. And that's how we really try and push it to the students. There's the, the, the kind of technical programming side. So our yeah. coders, um, uh, there's the art side, you know, visually how it looks and how it plays, how it feels. But then there's of course the mechanic side, which is that game design side. So we try and teach them actually in the beginning, all three. And then as they kind of go into their own separate areas, then they get more specific where they just focus on the art or they just focus on the design or the programming. So how long have you been gaming for? Did it, what came first? Was gaming come first or their fine arts background or they kind of happen at the same time or yeah. how did that kind of come together? Yeah, I love that question because it's it's something that I am always, I don't know which came first. I think both of them kind of happened at the same time. I knew I've always wanted to do something with art. So I've yeah. always sketched, I've always uh, uh, drawn, even done some sculpting too um, uh, from a very young age. Uh, I remember when like the uh, Batman with um, 
uh, Michael Keaton came out. Yeah. I took, I had all the cards and I drew them all and then sold them. Right. So oh, like, I, cool. I drew, so recreations of those cards, but then at the same time, I think it was 1987. I got my first Nintendo uh, uh, for Christmas uh, think, you know, uh, and, and I got Zelda and Mario and I played Zelda all day. Oh, yeah. And it was from then on that I was just absolutely hooked. Um, so it was kind of the two passions. And then I, when I got to college and even in high school, I knew I wanted to do something with art, but I didn't realize that I could do something with games. Like I, it didn't even come into my, my head that I could have a career connected to games too. I yeah. kind of just stumbled into that idea of let's bring my passions together you know, my, my passion for art, my passion for games together into a career. Uh, so it kind of just naturally happened. And did you focus on uh, graphic design as well as illustration or did you kind of lean one way or the other? Yeah. So it began more with illustration uh, where I went to uh, university for, for my undergrad, for my bachelor's, they didn't really have any graphic design. So I actually didn't even know that kind of existed as much. Yeah. It was more fine art. So I was doing sculpture. I was doing kind of weird, funky casting of like plastic and resin and installations and public art. Um, and it was not until I got further along and realized I could do that stuff on the computer, 3D model and yep. 3D print. And, and then that led into animation. Then that led into games and how I could actually make my own games as well. It's learning a little bit of coding and kind of visually creating environments too. So. Yeah, a lot of the uh, artists that I've talked to say when the digital world kind of opened up, that that really opened up design in a big way, right? Mm -hmm. So no longer is it, you know, sketching oil and canvas, but I mean, you can backspace, you can take layers there, yeah. you can add layers in, you can totally. do composites. There's so much more you can now do with computers. It's really kind of set people on a completely different path where mm -hmm. the sky is really your imagination is your, is your limit, right? This is exactly right. And and you can now take before you might have to see something and try and recreate, it, but now you can just grab it and there's, yeah. and there's, and that's okay. Like you can take some of that offline and then mash it together with something else. And then you've got something new and it's a, it's a pretty cool world we live in right now. That's for sure. So how did you end up in Scot is it Scotland? You ended up in mm -hmm. doing some research. What kind of research were you doing there? So I, as a professor, um, I am lucky enough at my university um, uh, to be able to apply for what's called the sabbatical. And the okay. sabbatical allows me to essentially say, okay, I do not need to, I'm not required to teach. It's, a, it's almost like a grant or an award. Mm -hmm. I'm not required to teach for this semester, uh, for this term. Instead, I can do uh, whatever I've proposed in this proposal that I submitted. I submitted a proposal that said, I'd like to conduct research in Scotland not doing anything with board games, um, but actually uh, doing stuff with virtual reality and augmented reality. Because a lot of my research at the mm. university involves that. So 3D modeling, creating objects kind of in space. Um, and so I was going to do something with history over in Scotland. Uh, and I was conducting that. We were doing some cool stuff with 3D scanning, scanning old sculptures to try and kind of recreate those in a different space. Oh, cool. um, uh, but yeah, so I found myself in fall of 2019, I was conducting research in Scotland uh, with augmented reality and history um, uh, where, when this all started. <laughs> that is crazy. Yeah. When you describe your, I'm going to put in quotation marks, your work, yeah, yeah. <laughs> most people are like, that sounds like, like a vacation. That sounds like, I know, like I know. a dream job, right? I know. 
Yeah. So where did, is it Tom Bow? Is that how I pronounce mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. So yeah, how good. did that come in during that whole augmented reality phase? Can you tell us no. what Tom Bow is? Yeah. So Tom Bow is a historical interactive experience, which is what I like to, to say. It's yeah. for those familiar with video games or indie games. I also refer to it as a walking simulator or walking yeah. sim or interactive film. Essentially what it is, is I've created an entire 3D environment that the uh, the player can and explore on their own. And there's a heavy narrative component. There's not a lot of gameplay. There's a little bit, but not much, a little bit of collection um, uh, and navigation. But I I wanted to make a piece, uh, a project that really kind of does feel more like an art piece. Uh, it's almost like a documentary combined with a game, combined with a, a, a film art piece that's talking about the history of our region of our country, but really anywhere probably in North America, it could, it could be that history around um, uh, the environment and cultures is kind of progress through time mm-hmm. uh, and technology and, and how we've essentially kind of um, abused or taken advantage of whether it's people or the land around us. So anyway, I wanted to create a, a piece, a statement, if you will, about this. So I did that. It took me three and a half years to do. Um, and I put it up on steam, uh, and itch for people to download and play. So it's something you play in your computer. And so that actually happened before Scotland, but that's actually what I used to propose the augmented reality and virtual reality, uh, research I was going to do in Scotland, because it was once again, going to be focusing on history and 3d and technology. Can you play it with like 3D goggles, like with VR goggles at all? Or? You can't, not the one you can download. The one you can download is just you play on your computer, but okay. I did develop a, a smaller version that is, yeah, a headset that you're in, you know, um, in that virtual world. So. And so, and right now online, people can actually check out if they, I mean, they do it on Steam, but they can even go on YouTube and see clips of this, yeah. uh, this yep. environment, which is pretty amazing yeah, um, how yeah. detailed the environment is, crazy detailed. Yeah, thank you, uh, yeah. And it, so, so if I understand this correctly, it allows you to kind of progress through time and see the mm-hmm. same environments over say 300 years. Is that kind yeah, of Yeah, very good. That's exactly right. A, a, a specific location that it could be anywhere really yeah. in North America, but on a river and you watch that exact location progress over a couple hundred years and see how that transforms for the good over the bad or a mix of both. Now, in addition to teaching, you're also a published, I guess, I would say, in terms of some of your artwork. And I've read that New York Times, Sculpture Magazine, National Geographic, uh, Journal of Science, uh, Book of Game Scenes, these have all kind of covered some of your, is it your artwork or is it some of your design theory or what what specifically has been yeah, published? In these, good question. You know? in, in almost all of those cases, they're images or um, designs that have been published um, uh, either just as a single image. So like the, uh, the NSF, the journal science published, I, we ended up, I collaborated with a marine biology biologist on a piece that was essentially, uh, trying to communicate a message about overfishing, uh, while the game scenes piece was a, a video game piece I did. Then I com- collaborated with, uh, uh, someone to write an essay about it. So mm-hmm. they wrote an essay about my work, uh, that then was, that was featured in that book game scenes. That's awesome. So back to Scotland. So you had this idea, I guess, when you were there doing research for this, this kind of game based on uh, creating spirits, right? Kind of Mm -hmm. like a, like an, almost like a virtual distillery. Mm -hmm. Um, How did you come up with that idea? Like, what was the genesis for that idea? Where did it come from? Yeah. So I was, as I said, yeah, I was thinking about uh, 3D. I was thinking about virtual reality and history and the environment over there in Scotland. Um, But I was also 
touring some distilleries and I was uh, maybe having some whiskey. <laughs> uh, not a lot. I was, I was responsible, but I, I had some, um, and, and I was playing games. I brought a whole suitcase full of games. So my, yeah. my board games, you know, uh, um, ones that would be easily travelable and also easily taught. Cause I was surrounded by lots of other people that I knew did not know games. Uh, so it'd be a great way to kind of, you know, uh, uh, introduce games to people. So I was playing lots of games, having whiskey, um, and I'm not kidding. It was just one night. I, I couldn't sleep. It was probably around 11 at night. And it was a true light bulb moment. Uh, uh, something switched uh, in my head mm -hmm. that I realized that I could demonstrate, not visually. I wasn't caring about visuals, which was rare for me. It's usually all about the visuals. Um, but I could demonstrate in a mechanic in a board game how the distilling process works. And yeah. so right when I thought of that, which was kind of there's a little bit of mitigate your luck. Uh, as well as a little bit of kind of recipe and set collection. Right when I thought of that, I couldn't turn it off. I thought like, you know, sometimes I'll have an idea like, oh yeah, that's good. And I'll write it down, right? Yeah. And and then I'll go back to sleep or I'll go to sleep. But I couldn't go to sleep. And so I went next door, next uh, out of my bedroom into this kind of joint, this communal living room that was with the other people that were living in this house. Yeah. Uh, and all night I was in this living room writing down furiously on pencil and paper, the idea for the game. And by the morning I had already come up with the name. I knew I wanted to call it distilled. Um, oh, and cool. I had come up with the basic, I would say probably about seven, eh, almost 65, 75% of the game that it is today is still that. So it was, it was very much a, a night of inspiration um, uh, fueled by just kind of the, all this ideas of creativity, inspiration around me. Uh, and then from there on forward, I was just doing nothing but that I dropped the other project entirely. Oh, wow. Uh, 100%. I just couldn't, I couldn't, I tried because I felt like I was working with someone else on it and, and he was a really good friend of mine and we were doing some good research, but I realized that could, that's still interesting, but this can't wait. I have to focus on this game. Like I, I have to get everything I can into this because I felt so good about it and so confident yeah. more than I had for, you know, as compared to most any other project I'd ever come up with before. So, so the, did this then become your research project? Yeah. The, yep. So you brought that back. Then when you got back to Wisconsin and said, here guys, here's what I've basically. Yeah, basically. Today. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's one of those things usually with a sabbatical uh, you're expected to either do an exhibition or a presentation. Uh, and so I've actually asked to defer mine uh, to be able to do that so that when the game is officially done, like yeah. Kickstarter, everything else, um, that I can really have a full, I'm actually planning to have a full exhibition, you know, putting things on the walls, um, showing process notes, showing old prototypes, almost like it would be like you'd be in a museum, you'd see in a vitrine of things. Yeah, I, I really cool. want to help people understand that it's more than just like, oh, isn't it fun to make a game? Like it's taking a lot of work. Oh, yeah. uh, as we know, that stuff does. And so I want to figure out a way to display that uh, for the public and for the university to see. So this has been what, two years then? And uh, like yep. in development, that was yep. 2019. You're, you're yeah, just in, about two years. Yeah. Right? Yep. I think the lesson here for people that, and I've been guilty of this myself, where I'll have an idea, I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I'll have an idea. And I'll be like, wow, there's no way I'm going to forget that when I get up. Yeah. I, I'm going to go back to sleep. And first thing I do tomorrow is I'm going to write that down. And the neck, and it just poof, it's gone. Yep. You wake up yep. next day, it's gone. So if you have inspired thought, get the hell out of bed, <laughs> yep. grab a pen and paper, write it down. I have stuff from like uh, probably 15, 20 years ago where I used to actually get up and, and write it down. Yeah. And I refer back on those notes now. I'm like, was I still half asleep when I wrote these notes? Because it makes absolutely <laughs> no sense to me now. But at least I went through the uh, you know the process of writing it down. So good for you. And then it turned into something like this. So 
explain distilled. I'm going to share my screen for the people that are uh, watching this podcast live or watching it on replay. Mm-hmm. But this game, just off the hop, let me say that it's reached, I'll put this in Canadian dollars because it always mm-hmm. sounds bigger, $416,000 on a roughly $23,000 goal. That is an insane uh, success marker. And you still got 10 days to go. You have 4,572 backers. That's a lot of backers. Congratulations uh, on that. That is amazing. And we'll get to this in a minute, but the fact that you funded that $23,000 in 23 minutes Mm -hmm. for someone's first published game is unheard of, right? So we'll talk maybe at the end of this podcast about maybe some of the things you did right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, that helped you and maybe some of the things that uh, you wouldn't repeat. So walk through the game. So distilled, what what is this? Yeah, so... This is, I, I call it a spirited strategy game. So essentially what you have here is it is a large amount of cards. So it's card-based, but not all not like you'd think of as just cards, cards, cards. There's some boards. There's some other things too. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest thing I like to say is that it's heavily thematic. Some people have oh, said yeah. they haven't seen a game that has more theme and mechanics tied where when, you, when I'm asking you to do something in the game, the rules ask you to do something, there's a thematic reason for it. Oh, in, in almost all cases. So the premise is you've inherited a distillery from some long lost relative somewhere somewhere um, that you maybe have never heard of or from wherever you've heard of. Uh, and it's your job to bring this distillery back to its former glory. So uh, all players have a, uh, a player mat in front of them that is uh, beautifully illustrated by our artist, Eric Evanson. Um, and we wanted this to be both a dashboard for gameplay, but also a visual, um, uh, almost dollhouse, if you will, of what you would picture yourself working in, in the distillery. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially what you're trying to do is acquire different goods, different items, different recipes, different uh, hiring people or equipment. Um, to make sure your distillery is able to craft the best possible spirits they can. Um, You're going to do that over the course of seven rounds where you're acquiring that stuff. You're distilling alcohol every round. You're either then going to immediately sell that alcohol for money. You're putting it in a bottle and sell it, or you're going to age it in your warehouse for further prestige. And you're going to do that over the course of those seven rounds. And whoever has the most points, which is what you get mostly from selling the spirits, um, is the winner. Um, and there's, uh, definitely some mitigate your luck. I don't like to say push your luck cause you can mitigate that if you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's also some set collection resource management and definitely some recipe fulfillment. Um, uh, people have said that they're not, they can't really compare this to many games. It's, they haven't seen many like it because it does. I purposely have tried to take kind of elements from lots of different kind of, uh, game styles. Mm-hmm. So some people say it's Euro. Some people say, well, it's too thematic to be a year that a year, a true Euro. So it's mm. kind of that, that interesting kind of mix, or at least I'm trying to get that uh, between there. And I'd say it's just under medium. So kind of a, a, a medium weight, uh, game for up to five players now, one to five players. And so the, and the, 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 the one player version of this is, is it kind of the same game, but just, or is it like kind of a different game using the same components? Yeah, there's a, um, the nice thing about it is uh, that it's designed by David Digby. He's designed Chocolate Factory, Tinner's Trail, uh, Dice Theme Park, solo versions. Yeah. Um, and the nice thing about it is that it takes the game and then it overlays not an uh, Automa or anything like that, but it overlays essentially this challenge or tiered uh, system that mm. you need to accomplish as a player um, that is highly replayable because it's a deck of cards that's pretty big. And so, you know, you're going to get only some of those each game. 
Um, so yeah, it really is something that goes kind of above or lays over the, the experience that you normally would have with just still playing with people around the table. How many unique pieces of art are in this game? Oh man, that's a good question. And nobody's ever asked me. And I, um, <laughs> not the foot on the spot. I know this is a lot. <laughs> Eric, Eric reminds me almost daily how many gigabytes it's taking up of his folder. But as far as the number, I would probably take a guess at easily over a hundred, probably more like 150. Um, there's obviously a lot of stuff that's repeated. Like there's a sure. deck of alcohol cards, there's, there's gotcha. grains, but um, there's, there's over 15 different people that you can play as those are mm -hmm. all. So technically you can play 15 different times and have a different person each time it has a different power, different background, different okay. recipe. Um, and then there's other people you can hire equipment. Uh, so yeah, I, I would say easily over a hundred, probably between hundred and 200. Wow. I, I would, yeah, I would say at least uh, there, there seems to be a lot of pieces. The player boards are very attractive and very cool. Some of the online uh, playthroughs I've seen, uh, you know, most people are very complimentary of this game, the way it was mm -hmm. designed, the, the, the thematic behind it, how the theme carries through the entire game. Most people are very complimentary on that. Um, but it, it's cool. Cause when you, although you've got lots of cards, when you see this kind of laid out on a table, uh, it is, uh, it, it's a lot of stuff, right? Like it, mm -hmm. it lays out like a huge kind of player board mm -hmm. uh, on your table, which I think a lot of people will be really attractive to. And it is visually uh, appealing when you, when you kind of see it all laid out there, you almost feel like you're, you're immersing yourself in that, uh, in, in that world. Um, some of your, what are your thoughts around some of the decisions you made? Like uh, which I thought was really cool. So I, I know the answer is probably just because it, it's cool, but um, taking like the head and the tail off of the, uh, of your batch, you create a batch and like in real life, um, you know, the beginning of the batch and the end of the batch kind of are kind of somewhat spoiled or can be redistilled. So they get mm -hmm. kind of taken off in some cases it can be toxic. Mm -hmm. um, was that important to you to kind of really kind of embed how, this, you know, spirits are actually made into this game? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Extremely. In fact, that what you just said there, James, the, the head and the tail taking that top and bottom card after you shuffle, that's the light bulb moment that I had. So it yeah. was that, that was when I realized that like, whoa, it was originally a deck builder. So there's yeah. got elements of a deck builder still in yeah, it, yeah. but it's not a, a deck builder, but engine um, building too. Yeah. 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 Uh, it originally, that's the, the part that I thought, oh my gosh, I can't remember a game where you're required to take cards out, but you could have filled it with enough cards to be mitigate that okay, to yeah. still fulfill a recipe. Um, so that was extremely important. And once I realized that I could emulate that, I immediately had a vision for the distillery. It's something you look in and you install upgrades. Yeah. I wanted to make sure that the equipment you buy or the people you hire are things you actually find in a distillery. So for instance, yeah. you know, one quick example, is um, there's something called a worm tub. And again, a lot of this is based on stuff from Scotland and yeah, America okay. or, or um, North America, like Canada or yeah. in, in the States or other places might not call them that, they don't. But the worm tub is essentially after the still boils the alcohol, the, those vapors rise first. When they cool, they turn into liquid and they go down the other side, down a pipe. In order to really cool those down and essentially turn them effectively into liquid, it goes through a coil in a big vat of cold water, which is called a worm tub. Gotcha. So 
what I decided to do was I wanted to make that a card so people can install a worm tub in their distillery. And what that does is that gives them extra alcohol, which is a, a good thing in the game to get. Um, uh, so essentially what I'm again trying to do is it, it's giving a mechanical power, but it's also trying to be somewhat thematically connected to actually what that benefits uh, the distiller with in real life. So I've tried whenever possible from the the ingredients to the barrels to the recipes i've tried as hard as i can to connect theme and mechanics whenever whenever i could and i don't want to compare this to lemonade stand yeah. but but <laughs> having a game that that when you play it could almost teach the fundamentals of commerce i think is is super cool like even uh having to make the decision of you know am i going to age uh, am I going to age my batch and kind of, you know, age it in a barrel and, you know, that, that money's now tied up. Right. So now exactly. I got less resources to buy ingredients. The next one, but mm-hmm. you know, the gamble is that, you know, that with the aging is going to be worth more when I do finally mm-hmm. um, bottle it and, and sell it. I thought it was really cool that there was a mechanic in there where as you're aging it, you're, you're adding things to, to kind of bring some flavors out in, mm-hmm. in your, in your batch. And you don't really know what you're going to have until you kind of bottle it. Is that, yep. is that correct? That's, that's right. It's kind of, it's what I'm trying to do there is just like you said, teach people a little bit about that process while yeah. also having a little fun. So technically I could have said, oh no, you get to look through all the flavors and you get to choose which one is best and you get to put that in. But, and that would have maybe somewhat been a little bit more accurate in the sense of a master distiller who, or a warehouse manager uh, is going to know if I put it in this kind of barrel and I age it for this long, there's a good chance it's going to taste, have caramel notes or it's going to have yeah. vanilla notes or whatever. But I decided that again, we don't want to lean too far to simulation because then people stop having as much fun. Like yeah. we want to have something that also has some random chance some fun. So what I said is no, actually you just get to draw in most cases, unless you have a special card uh, that says otherwise, you just draw a flavor off the top. You don't get to look at it and you just put it into your barrel. But what that means is that let's say they age it for three rounds. They put three flavors in there. When they go to bottle it, what I wanted was a big reveal at the table. So when people pull out their whiskey, they they say, oh, look at this whiskey. It's got notes of vanilla. It's got notes of tobacco <laughs> and manure. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, and so it's a laugh. It's like a laugh. It doesn't yeah. gameplay wise really affect you because you still get the same amount of points. You might yeah. not get as much money. Um, uh, but again, if you invest in the right distillery upgrades, you can pick your flavors. You pull, pull two, pick the one you want and discard the other one. So there's ways to mitigate that as well. Yeah, that's super cool. Yeah. So you hit um, some pretty staggering numbers on this campaign. It's your first campaign and yeah. it, I'm sure it doesn't hurt to uh, be associate dean at uh, <laughs> in charge of a program, which is a Bachelor of Fine Arts of game design, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but what are some of the things that you've done that's really uh, helped your success out of the gate. Certainly 23,000, 23 minutes is insanely good. Um, what, what are some of the things you did? Yeah. So I want to first say, yeah. So thank you first, James. I, I really appreciate that. And I, I want to first say that this has been a complete and utter surprise. Um, uh, I did feel I was setting myself up for success. So I'll talk about that in a second. Yeah. But um, the, the, the amount of how fast it blew up and how far it's gone has been beyond anything I could imagine, honestly. And again, maybe that's because speaking from a first-time creator, I was not expecting this, but I've studied Kickstarter. I back 60 projects of my own, on my own. I know Kickstarter well from yeah. that perspective. So um, with that said, 
I think that probably the biggest thing I did very early, almost probably about a year and a half ago, was I focused on community. Mm-hmm. I did nothing but, but uh, or not nothing, but I, I focused so heavily on community. So that included starting a Facebook group and inviting people all the time, um, uh, as well as obviously, you know, your typical social channels. Um, I started uh, signing up for every single virtual con I could, because at that point, it was all virtual cons. Yeah, COVID. Ar- yeah. Around, yep, around the world. Um, uh, and so what I did then was I just demoed or play tested really my game throughout that entire, those cons every time. So that kind of started building people as well. I started building up a Discord channel too. Um, so all of those things started feeding into this idea that there was other people that had played this that could share it. Cause I couldn't bring it to a con during mm-hmm. COVID to be able to say, Hey, play test this game. You can see it. Um, so that was a big part of it. Uh, contest as well. I saw your finalist, yep. I think an ion award as well as uh, cardboard cardboard Edison. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So same thing. I, I entered those two contests and um, I tried my best at that, knowing that um, there was a lot of competition, but since I knew, and this should be noted too, I knew from the beginning because I was partnering with my my friend Eric, who's the artist. Mm-hmm. I knew I wanted to do Kickstarter. Yeah. If I had wanted to take this to a publisher, it would have been a very different route, right? But yeah. I knew I wanted to do Kickstarter, so I entered those contests for that reason as well. Um, I think the other thing I did, and this is this is funny because this is something that many people advise me not to do, and even during my process for the last year and a half, I second guess myself. But I think it's turned out to 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 help is I have simultaneously tried to um, uh, uh, communicate or, or market, however you want to say it, uh, project this idea to the game community, but I've also projected it to the whiskey and spirits community. Mm. Now, a lot of people said, don't waste your time with that. There's not going to be that many people interested in that. Uh, and I think to a certain degree, they're correct. There's there's not that many. But the, the thing I realized very early on and why I probably was so hot to trot to try and create this game as, as well and fast as I could was that I realized there's not a single other game out there that has to do with making whiskey. There's awesome games about beer. Yeah. There's awesome games about wine. Cocktails and stuff, yeah. Yeah, cocktail, awesome games yeah. about cocktails, but nothing about distilling alcohol because it sounds like kind of a boring, bland thing. Yeah. Um, it's all science-y. Uh, and so that's also why I knew I could find this Venn diagram of like board gamers, spirits fans, and where they intersect. It could be a group that has never been talked to before. And, and so that could be my group. And I feel like that's maybe what's a core of my group has been that um, because they've never had a game that they that bring their two passions, like my two passions, whiskey and board games uh, together. So you built some advocates along the way as well, I guess, right? With uh, starting this kind of social group and so forth, at least a year in advance. Yep. Um, I see you got Backer Kit. Is Backer mm-hmm. Kit doing the promotional ads for you? Like, they're doing, uh, they're doing a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're doing a little bit. Uh, I would probably, I did market, I started paying for marketing about two months before the Kickstarter launched. Mm-hmm. Um, I paid about $20 a day. I yeah. worked with a, um, uh, actually a marketing company that does a lot with, um, games on Facebook specifically. Um, and just Facebook. I haven't done, I haven't marketed anywhere else. Obviously there's you want to give them through. a shout out. Huh? You yeah, sure. Them? Yeah. It's, uh, they're called next level web. Um, uh, and actually Andrew Lowen is the, the owner of that company. He actually just finished a successful, really successful Kickstarter with deliverance. It was a, a, mm. a board game. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're great. I mean, basically we created the ads and then they helped us navigate the Facebook ad realm, which is kind of confusing and difficult. Yeah. 
And so that really, that really helped that grew my mailing list. Cause I had a very big mailing list um, beforehand, but then that grew even more going into the Kickstarter. Um, so I like think how that's big another is big, reason. how big is a big mailing list? I had about a thousand people on my mailing list two months before I started two months before the Kickstarter. And when I launched, I had, so uh, a week and a half ago, I had 3000. Nice. So that really grew uh, as far as that, that mailing list. And again, not all of it, but a large part of it, it was probably thanks to the, that advertising. Yeah. I'm doing a little bit of advertising with Backerkit. Yep. Um, a decent amount actually, but it's, we're starting to crank it down a little bit more now because we just want to make sure we're, we're making enough on it. Sure. Um, but uh, yeah, I think, I think also, yes, it helped to the fact that I've also tried to gather a large group around me uh, for my team. So it's just myself at, at my game studio, but um, I've brought other people on at the bottom of the Kickstarter page. You'll be able to see kind of this group of, of team members that I've, I've uh, assembled. Um, and I think that's helped as well because I realized from Tombow, it was all a solo game. I just did everything pretty much almost all myself and mm -hmm. it took quite a long time. And I realized for this game, I wanted something where I could look to experts. So I've got a fantastic developer over in the UK. Uh, I've got the, uh, my artist of, as well. But then I've also got um, a friend of mine who did all the scripting for Tabletop Simulator. That uh, attracted quite a lot of people. So really trying to go into this, knowing that I had lots against me as a first-time creator. And basically, my hope was that every time someone would think to be like, eh, but I would have an answer for it. Yeah. But it doesn't look finished. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, but I can't try this out. Oh, actually, Tabletop Simulator, Tabletopia, and free print and play. Like, I'm just trying to throw as much as I can to yeah. demonstrate to them that, no, please do take me seriously because I'm taking this very seriously. One thing I, I, I saw when I was going through your campaign um, that I was surprised at um, is you, you're launching the expansion at the same time. Mm -hmm. And typically, when you see that, um, the bulk of your pledges would be on your base game. And then you're going to see maybe 20, 25% of your pledges, uh, you know, kind of on the expansion. And this is the first time I've seen this uh, that I've seen anyways, where you've got 2,851 people who are buying the premium version, which is the base game plus the expansion mm -hmm. and then 793 getting the base game. So that, that, you know, that's completely reversed as to what I would expect. And, you know, it's not even like it's cheap, right? So you got $85 at the premium level, $55 at the base level, plus shipping costs, plus uh, VAT tax. Mm -hmm. What was the decision process going in? Because to me, you know, the, the kind of the natural path might be to launch a base game, come back a year later once you've got a bunch of fan base and a lot of buzz around the game, then launching mm -hmm. an expansion. And then when you launch expansion, then you also get another crop of people coming in and buying the base game. Mm -hmm. What led to the decision to do both? Yeah, yeah, wonderful question. Um, the, and the, the reason that I, I love that question is that I wrestled with that actually quite a lot. Um, originally, th the game's always had three regions in the base game, Americas, Europe, and Asia and Oceania. Yeah. Um, I have based most of the spirits in the game on, especially the core spirits on uh, that you can make um, on the most consumed spirits in the world. So for instance, there's a spirit uh, in China called Baijiu. Uh, that is actually one of the most consumed spirits in the world, much more than whiskey, much more than rum or vodka and gin. Um, I, I knew I wanted that in the game. I also knew many people would not have ever heard of this. And so it's my opportunity to be able to educate them on, on something new as well. What I also realized though, 
is that there's some really interesting spirits in Africa and the Middle East. Not probably as many uh, because some of those cultures actually don't drink, uh, but um, there still are some that I wanted to be sure to communicate to the larger population. But I knew because distilled was already getting so big that I couldn't include that in the base game. Yeah. I also knew that I could, you know, almost think of like wingspan. I could wait a year and say, here's a, the Oceana birds yeah. or, you know, whatever. But I just thought, because um, to be perfectly honest, there's not a lot of new mechanical change in this. It's almost like, I wouldn't call it a mini expansion because it's like 150 cards, but, uh, but it's also not a game-changing mechanical swap and change. Mm -hmm. So it was more of just something, my decision was, I want to be able to offer this right away. I know that some people might appreciate that. Some people might not. So I want to make them separate. A lot of times it might be like deluxe version versus not. It's the yeah. same core game. And then I wanted to add some other things. I knew people would want metal coins, of course. Everyone always wants the metal coins. Um, but uh, uh, so that's where that began, that, that ended up. But about halfway along that journey, I was actually going to be having that expansion also have the fifth player. Because the game supports four players, uh, but I realized that if I had the fifth player folded into the expansion, then the box all of a sudden has to be like this big. Yeah. And so I decided to cut the fifth player and, and make that a stretch goal that I wasn't sure if we were going to get to, to be perfectly honest. Um, but we did so that we can keep that in the main box. And so that what that did was that shrunk the expansion down to a much more manageable box size mm -hmm. that... My hope is that it's uh, that plus the coins plus some other stuff has been added since then is going to make it for a good deal. But you're right. It's, it's something that I've got an idea uh, for uh, many ideas for future expansions. Yeah. Um, but since this one wasn't going to be that mechanically different and I, um, I, I thought this is better to include it in the main campaign. And will everything fit in? So on the premium level, will everything fit in one box right now? No. And uh, mm. well, I shouldn't say that right now. I don't think so. We didn't plan on that because again, we didn't we didn't think we'd raise this much money. Um, so we're having to kind of reconsider and see: is yeah. this something possible to do through uh, an organizer uh, away? Because the main game has over four hundred and fifty cards now, yeah. uh, plus uh, probably another hundred or so tokens. So it's already going to be a, a pretty big coffin box in itself. Yeah. And so to fit that into the expansion, we're not sure yet because we want to. Oh, I should say. Honestly, the first priority is I want to make sure that we can fit sleeved cards in yeah. that box. Um, and if we have to do that, plus the expansion, that might be too much. And that's where we're not sure yet. We're trying to figure that out. Everybody loves their sleeves. I know. Well, yeah, you go, you got to, <laughs> especially when a, a game has this many cards, yeah. you got to respect the sleevers uh, in oh, this absolutely. case, right? Yeah. So where, where do you go from here? So now once this, I mean, you still got 10 days to go and I, I know that, you know, the development it always extends way beyond people think, Oh, once the campaign's done, that's, you know, the easy work's done. No, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, you got twice as much work even looking forward, Yeah. but is the plan to then continue with the faculty or do you mm -hmm. kind of see this as a path of um, certainly, I think it's on brand for you, right? The, mm -hmm. You're, you're, you're teaching this uh, as part of the BFA. Um, can you see other games coming out as, as part of uh, Paverson? Yeah. So <laughs> before this, before this all happened, it really was, I'm going to do this and I'm going to probably make some other games myself in the future. And yeah. uh, for sure, both expansions for this that I have have plans for already, but then also future ideas for games that I've got in the back of my head. Yeah, uh, I'm honestly now, because of uh, how this has gone, 
I'm starting to seriously consider, can I uh, take on other designers? Yeah. Like other, other games. And can, cause I, the thing I'm finding James, and I haven't said this to anyone yet. You're, you're the first person I've mentioned this to besides my developer um, is I'm finding in my artist, I'm finding that I really like the project management. I like the publishing side. I like the design side. Of yeah. course, I love that. Um, and I love getting in there and, and making tweaks. We're still making little tweaks here and there. But I love working with the community and interacting with the backers. I love yeah. communicating with them. I love um, promotion um, and, and helping people learn about the game. So I honestly wonder, I am going to continue, especially if any of them at Stout is watching this. Yes, I'm not quitting. All right. <laughs> I, am, I am continuing my, my job. I love my job. Yeah. Um, uh, and, but at the same time, I want to see if there's other opportunities for working with other creatives and that maybe kind of wrap that into my game studio, especially our focus really, or at least my focus for the game studio is a heavy theme, uh, but also authenticity. So yeah. um, uh, trying, it doesn't necessarily mean you need to teach something, but um, that idea, especially connected to me as an educator is important as well. Yeah, it's cool. I think when, you know, I think this is kind of the natural progression for a lot of publishers, right? I think many of them start off as game designers themselves, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, my company's no different, you know, design yep. my own games, publish my yeah, own games. Exactly. And then you get to a point where you're saying, you know what, the project management side is, that's the heavy lifting, right? And a lot of people, there's more people out there designing games than people doing the project management side, mm -hmm. right? So if you can kind of figure that out in a way that's efficient and, and you can do it in, you know, really well where people are happy, your backers and are satisfied and so forth. Mm -hmm. Then you get to the point where the game design side is almost consuming time that you could be using on the project management side. Actually, actually slows down your, your publishing um, yep. uh, cycle, right? So mm -hmm. uh, we find that even on our end is our, our Kickstarter coming up is, is with another designer. We took their game and said, you know, like the idea, mm -hmm. we're good at what we do. Let's mm -hmm. kind of get together and, and, and push this out. So it's kind of the natural evolution. But I like the part you said about, kind of almost figuring out what is the wheelhouse for your company, right? And mm -hmm. I think that's the trap that some can fall into where they, you know, they might do a couple of games on Kickstarter and then say, okay, now let's do a D&D &D game because all the money around minis <laughs> and stuff like that. And then yeah. they're starting from scratch with mm -hmm. their trying to build up their, their, their fan base because their fan base is used to this style of game over here exactly. that they've already done. And, you know, they're, they're kind of now, they don't have an identity, right? They're almost yep. conflicting with their own identity. So it's cool to see. And uh, I'm sure the educated side comes, uh, comes through on yeah. this is kind of picking your brand, sticking with it and yep. uh, creating many more games to come. Yeah. Dave, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. I know we went over it, but gosh, this is a, this oh, is a thank great you, conversation. James. It's been and, great. I, I You've asked you... some of the best questions I've had before. <laughs> so I really appreciate it. Thank oh, you. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. You have yeah. yourself a good one and all the yeah. best in this campaign. You take you too. Thanks. Cheers. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge Podcast, hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply join the Facebook group Board Game Binge, and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time.